Hello and welcome to the first episode of a brand new podcast, Animation Exploration. I'm your host, Rowan Kosnitz, and we've got a really exciting episode today. Some really cool interviews. First off, we're going to be interviewing the founder and head of Netflix Animation, Ms. Melissa Cobb. What? So exciting. After that, we're going to be interviewing the founders and instructors of a student-led class at Oberlin College called Cartoon Co., Zaria and Sydney, as well as a fellow student of Cartoon Co., Chloe, and another student of Cartoon Co., Casey, who makes a guest appearance. Um, why, are, why am I into this? I mean, I love cartoons. They've been a huge part of my life for many years. Um, they're some of my hugest interests have really given me a strong sense of self and a strong community of people and I'm just really grateful that I get to talk to all these amazing people on this podcast and connect with them and let's get right into it. Hi, it's so nice to have you here. Um, would, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Thank you for having me here, Rowan. Um, I am, my name is Melissa Cobb, and I'm an animated film producer and executive in calling in from Burbank, California. You are so cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, also, like, I'm wearing an Owl House shirt right now, and, like, <laughs> I have, like, Amphibia and, like, Owl House posters on all over my <laughs> So, sorry, I know that's more Disney, but just in the realm of animation. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, so, um, can could you tell me a bit about you and how you ended up in this job and, like, what got you into animation? Sure. Um, I did other kinds of entertainment stuff before, so I produced theater for a while, and then I produced um, and was an executive for movies, but not animated movies, live action movies. And then I was um, ended up working at Disney in their sort of family film um, area, obviously, and then went to Fox, where I was working in family films also, and then the division I was working in turned into an animation division. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I will learn how to do that. Um, and I really fell in love with it right away. Just the, um, the challenge and the opportunity of telling stories in animation is so great. Um, and the opportunity to really tell stories that can be timeless and can work for audiences all over the world is really unique in animation. Um, so I've worked at, at Fox and um, at DreamWorks for a lot of years. Um, I worked in a DreamWorks studio that we had in Shanghai for a few years. And then when I came back, I ended up um, coming to Netflix to really basically build their animation business from kind of from scratch. So it was a huge opportunity to get to do something that happens probably once in a lifetime to um, start an animation division. That's so amazing. So, so very, very lucky to do what I do. That's so cool. Uh, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, is there, do you have a favorite show or movie that you've like ever worked on out of curiosity? Um, I, you know, I have lots of love for lots of different shows and movies that I've worked on. Um, you know, top of mind right now is this film Pinocchio, which will come out on Netflix on December 9th. 
Um, and it's just such a beautiful, emotional, and original telling of the story from Guillermo del Toro and something that he was passionate about making for the last 15 years. Um, and so to be able to work with a filmmaker of that caliber on a project that is such a passion project for them was just a real treat. Um, and I'm really happy with how it all came together and excited to share it with the world. So, you know, that's obviously super exciting for me. Um, I produced the Kung Fu Panda movies and that was a good 12 years of my life. <laughs> so, so obviously a big part of my life was spent um, with Poe, the panda and the other characters in that. Um, and that is obviously really special to me and um, allowed me to sort of reach audiences all over the world in ways that I never expected um, I would be able to. So when you make a film like that and, you know, you're in a monastery in the mountains of China or you're in Russia or wherever in the world you might be, you find people that have seen it and been impacted by it in some way. And that is such a just incredible experience. And so I'm very grateful um, to have been involved in those movies and to be able to have it touch people like that all over the world. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. In your opinion, like what makes animation unique from live action? Like what what is it able to do that live action can't do? And like how how is the choice made to tell a story through animation and what what makes that like the chosen medium? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, hopefully people are more and more open to all kinds of stories being told in animation. There's a, a film that I wasn't involved in that was done at Netflix last year called Intergalactic. Um, that's really very much a straight kind of romantic comedy, um, which you don't normally think of in animation, but they found a way to really use the animation to accent the emotions and what the characters were going through in really interesting visual ways and that's a great example of something where you're like okay there's a story that doesn't necessarily have to have talking animals <laughs> or whatever um, but it's just about human emotions but you can express those in really interesting and deep ways um, so I like to think that there aren't really any limits in terms of what types of stories you should tell in animation um, but I will say what I think is really special about it is that it invites people to sort of leave their reality more quickly and to buy into sort of a new world and a new set of characters and a new experience um, because they sort of leave their real world at the door when they watch animation. Um, and so you really can take people on journeys that are a little bit different. Um, you know, people love and continue to embrace musicals and animation and you see that, that that's not as common in other forms anymore and so it's really interesting how people are much more open to different kinds of stories and different kinds of worlds in animation um so that's a thing that i love the other thing that's wonderful is that um it translates really well so when you dub an animated movie and you watch it in a different country or a different language it feels very um local to that experience of the people in that country and so because of that it can sort of be seen all over the world um and the other opportunity i think is really timeless storytelling and um, so if you're picking kind of your approach to animation in a way that is really forward-looking you know you have an opportunity to make a film that people might still be watching 100 years from now like cinderella or something you know um and that's that's pretty exciting. And so stories that have 
really strong timeless themes I think are wonderful for animation because there is that opportunity for people to discover them 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, speaking of timeless themes, um, something like, so I first for this project wrote an essay and then I'm now turning it into a new form of a podcast. But the main uh, question I was trying to answer is like, how can animation be used to portray and show um, like imbalances in power and how characters react to those and like grow in the face of those and also potentially like the impact that watching that can have on an audience. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting premise or interesting thing that you're talking about. And I think um, sometimes people don't want to confront their, um, their flaws directly, right? But they might be open to confronting them indirectly. So if you think of a movie like Zootopia is a great example which is really about inequality and racism and, and social injustice. And a lot of themes like that run through the movie, but because it's animals, people go, oh, they're not talking about me. So I can sort of, <laughs> I can embrace this story and I can root for these characters to do well and I don't have to take it personally. And so that kind of metaphorical experience allows people to um, be able to handle topics that they might be offended about or not open to hearing about in a different context, particularly when you sort of move yourself from kind of the human element. Yeah, that's a good point. And then you suggested before this call that I watch Wendell and Wild, and I did. And I feel like that's a really good example. That's not with animals, but Wendell Wild is definitely a bit more like pointed. Like you can really tell what they're saying. It's like private prisons are bad and we should combat them. So, but it, I think it still would hold that like you can watch it and feel distance from it and still like learn about it through the character's eyes what would what do you think about that in context of what yeah I think so you know I hope so I hope people because it's in stop motion and there's all this uh, there's great music and there's a really entertaining story that there's also a really strong theme there about redemption and the need for redemption and the prison industrial complex <laughs> themes that don't often come up in animation um but in that particular one, there's also a, a lot of other entertainment value. So again, it's not like you're going to study a political issue. You're going to see this really sort of interesting story about this girl managing um, her issues from the past and uh, how she comes to terms with those um, and her own personal kind of demons. Um, but it's all there because it's sort of taking those metaphorical things and making them literal you get sort of a fun entertainment value out of it. Quick interlude. When she says taking these metaphorical concepts and making them literal, she's talking about how the characters Wendell and Wilde are cat, the main character's literal demons personified and coming up from like down below and trying to be resurrected basically. So it adds that different aspect of not just combating her own personal trauma and issues internally, but personifying them and showing them in this kind of more comical, visceral way. You know, you can imagine a very serious movie, a drama, a live action drama set in a very similar world of a girl who's gone through the, you know, prison system and um, it could be really dark. Mm -hmm. I think you're allowed to, through animation, kind of take topics like that and make them more accessible. And that's something that, um, you know, Jordan Peele was one of the writers on it. And um, 
felt really strongly that there just isn't um, representation of black characters in stop motion. You know, stop motion is a pretty, pretty, you know, there's a, there's a long, long history of stop motion in film, um, but not that many films that have been made. And I think it was just really important to say, like, why, why haven't we seen um, black characters represented in that space? And how can we do that in a way that feels, you know, resonant and honest? Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about in general in animation, it feels like there's not a lot of black characters. But like, I haven't thought about it in the context of like stop motion. I don't know that much about like the differences in representation yeah. in these. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think um, hopefully, hopefully we're in a period of a bit of a revolution. Um, but you know, the the we'll call the barriers to entry in animation have always been very high. So if you wanted to make an animated film for a hundred years, you sort of had to go to Disney and do that. If you wanted to make a big kind of studio animated film, that was the only place that made them. And so there was only one maybe made a year or maybe two. And it was kind of the same group of really talented, extraordinary filmmakers that were making those films. But the the, the number of opportunities to make a film and the sort of breadth of people that were given the opportunity was quite limited. And over time, that is... Um, grown and expanded and now there's other companies there's Pixar and there's DreamWorks and there's Sony and there's other companies um, but I would say it still can be very limited who's given the opportunity to tell a story in animation um, in the feature space and it was something that um, when I started at Netflix I was very focused on is to sort of try to widen that funnel and widen the, the kinds of storytellers so um there have not been very many animated feature films, like stu- based on animated feature films directed by women. Um, one of the very few of them was Kung Fu Panda 2 that was directed by Jenny Nelson. Um, and there's probably two others, you know, in the history of feature animation. <laughs> um, so when I came to that, I was like, okay, then we've got to, we've got to change this. Um, and so, quite a number of the films now happening here are directed by women or people of color or people that otherwise may not have had an opportunity in the past. And what that does is it not only sort of changes the kinds of stories that are told, but in my experience, it also changes the kinds of crews that are hired. Mm -hmm. And so when you have somebody who comes from a different or unique perspective directing a film, they are more likely to hire people who also represent um, more unique points of view and it it kind of like if you start with that director job it, it really sort of changes the, the composition of the crew in pretty extraordinary ways um so i'm hoping you know it's sort of like netflix and the other streaming services and sort of more opportunities that 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 whole thing will change yeah to connect that back to what we were talking about before with like how like watching these kinds of like stories can impact the viewers. Like I, we can also I think talk about how like obviously seeing the representation of like seeing yourself represented in animation for people who like usually aren't like don't see themselves on screen also makes such a big difference. And especially in these stories of showing like these specific imbalances in power and when the main characters are underrepresented, like of underrepresented backgrounds or identities and how that can really impact people of those identities and also probably people not of those identities to to like see more marginalized people being the main character. Um, do you have any thoughts on that too? Yeah, it's, it's such an important point. And um, 
again, I feel like Netflix has given us a unique platform, a unique opportunity to be able to do that because it's Netflix audience is a huge global audience. It's just a 200 and something million households, right? So it's a huge global audience. And so it's really important when you're trying to speak to an audience that is that broad and that global that you do think about representation. Because I don't think, you know, when you think of the whole world, they don't want to just see stories from one point of view, right? Um, in animation, I think it's even more important because of young people being able to see themselves. But as you're saying, it's not just being able to see yourself reflected, it's also being able to see people who aren't like you reflected and as main characters and as positive characters um, within the entertainment that you watch. Um, and it's really impactful in ways that you don't necessarily even know is going to happen. We have a, um, a project coming up, which we screened for an audience, and it has a character, she's a shapeshifter, um, and it's a really great character. But what was really interesting when we screened it for kids was um, kids who identified as neurodiverse really identified with that character. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like a thing, wouldn't necessarily have thought of that connection, but you just realize by like showing characters that have different qualities, you're able to connect to people who might not be just like that, but who find themselves outside the norm in some other ways, you know? So it's, um, it's really something that I think is incredibly important. Um, and hopefully, I think, you know, all of the studios see that that's important as well. And we have a different responsibility when making content for, for kids. Um, and you need to have content that's relevant to kids. You know, you can't present a set of values that are 50 years old to kids that are five today. It's not going to resonate. It's not going to make sense. <laughs> so trying to portray the world as it is is important. Yeah, thank you for all of that. Um, to go off of that too, um, can we talk about Dead End Paranormal Park a bit? Hi there. So, Dead End Paranormal Park is based off a graphic novel series. It's an animated uh, show on Netflix. There's two seasons out right now, and it follows these two teenagers, Barney and Norma, as they get jobs at this haunted, demonic theme park and figure out, try to uncover the mysteries of it and fight the demons. We're going to get into the representation bit. So Barney is a gay trans guy who's also Jewish and the representation is really exciting. And Norma is an autistic Pakistani American girl who is also has an arc exploring her queer identity. And it's very, it's a great show. You should watch it. Speaking of like neurodivergent representation and then also obviously like trans and queer representation too and then also racial representation like that was when I watched that I was like this is so cool this is so awesome it's like one of my favorite shows and like okay. I'm I'm non-binary I was like this is so good and um I just it it felt very like monumental and like new and so I wanted to ask him like just about the creation of it and like how it came to be and like were there obstacles there because I also know like generally when you're reaching a global audience there is like the prop like trying not to get like censored when going to different audiences so how do you how how did that all come together yeah that's a the censorship thing is really interesting but that um 
So Hamish, who um, is the creator of that, had done it as a graphic novel. I don't know if you were familiar with the graphic novel. Um, and came and pitched it to us at Netflix. And we just felt like, okay, this is a great, a great world, but also a great opportunity to really show a diverse range of characters from a creator who has such a, um, a passionate and fun view of the world um, and created something that we just thought was really special and unique. So you're sort of creating this, this library of content that is much more inclusive. You know, we often kind of say, don't, don't come to the studio because you have something to sell. Come to the studio because you have something to say, mm. right? And Hamish falls into that category where he really has something he wants to say. Um, and so it's really important to include their voice in the sort of series space. Um, there are obviously trade-offs that, that you make in terms of um, how that content will be viewed in different countries, like you're saying, with regard to ratings and censorship. And you do have to take that into account and understand that, you know, there might be ratings that make it almost impossible for children in certain countries to see that content, or there might be password protected viewing in other countries, or there might not be allowed in other countries. Um, but I think Netflix generally tries to stand behind the creators and to make that content available everywhere they can. Making content in a constantly changing environment. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a really great show. Yeah, no, thank you. Also, in terms of LGBTQ representation at Netflix, I was not someone who watched She-Ra, but so many of my friends were so into She-Ra. Like, um, and I know that it was so monumental and such a big deal in like all aspects of like LGBTQ representation and really made the way for a lot of the more recent things. Could you speak about She-Ra at all? Yeah, again, that was sort of, um about a sort of a filmmaker that had a passion for telling a story in a certain way and embracing a character in a certain way. And we try to really support filmmakers and kind of what they, they want to say and how they want to tell their stories. Um, and again, the more you bring people with different perspectives and different life experiences into those opportunities to write or direct or produce shows, the more that is going to just sort of be the, the language with which they tell their stories. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was, again, probably subtle in the case of Shira, but, um, but I think still really pivotal in a lot of ways. So it was a, a pretty successful and show that people still really love and talk about a lot. How do you think that like the, like the medium of animation when like showing like, uh, like back to like the differences in power and those kinds of struggles, like how can like th that be more conveyed through like movement and different like styles of animation in general? Yeah, wow, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, when you're crafting a character in animation, whether it's an animal character or a human character or an alien character, or whatever it may be, um, you are uh, in the design of the character, very intentional, you know, how you're designing that in terms of who is that character and what is their background and what is their status. And then as you're developing the movement style for that character, that becomes part of the conversation that you're having. So um, um, it's a, because you're, you're not hiring an actor so much, right? You're creating a character and you're working with your animators to create that character. So I think of a recent example in a film I was working on where um, there's a character in this town who is, um, 
she's kind of a people look down on her and we were talking with the writer like how would she present herself walking through the town would she be sort of like cowering or would she be kind of like you know bowing would that be right for the culture that we were talking about he was like no she would walk with her head held high and she would not let any of it bother her because that's who she is and so you're like oh this is really interesting like how we can convey her status in a way that might not be obvious but could be really interesting and for character nuance and so that's just a tiny example but every detail in animation is crafted in that way where you really think about you know how does this character show up how do they walk down the street you know how do they take their steps how what are their hand motions like what does that convey about where they came from and so you're really doing very deep work on every single aspect of every single character um and that sort of status differences and how two characters relate to each other is a big part of that um it has to do with even how you shoot two characters in a scene how you frame two characters in a scene you're often reflecting a power dynamic in that way as well um so it's you know it's it's, it's everything i guess lighting it's the voice casting all of those things um because there's a very sort of subtle thing that happens in animation which is you're trying to tell the story almost to be able to say if there were no dialogue would i still understand what's happening in the story would i still understand that dynamic between these two people would i still be able to see who who is in power in this moment or who is um, confident in this moment or whatever so using all of those tools um through the whole process <laughs> that answer the question definitely <laughs> no that was amazing thank you that's like a lot of what i was trying to explore in my essay because it was um the assignment was to like close read some aspect of performance and so i was yeah. like close reading like a, like two different animated scenes with like power imbalances are being challenged and then trying to see that like not really talking about the dialogue for the most part but just seeing like the movements yeah. and how that changed and it's just so interesting because it is all so intentional and goes through so many stages of change so yeah, yeah. sort of like frame, frame by frame and it's you know a live action movie will do the same thing right but mm -hmm. the actor is bringing a lot to that as well and it's sort of again the camera choices and everything that you do wardrobe lighting everything it kind of helps tell that story but it's even more um controlled i guess in animation because you really are crafting every frame of it <laughs> the last part so i know that we talked about uh, a lot of your journey with netflix and also some of the more recent shows more representation so like this is just a general question of like where's what was able to help netflix evolve to have more representation and like kind of what do you think is gonna what, what do you think it's going to grow to in the future? Like, it just seems like we keep getting better and better with more different stories being told. So yeah, I, I think it's about the, again, to me, it always goes back to the creators um, and empowering creators and giving them an opportunity to tell their story. And then, then the, the world can decide, is that a story I want to see or not a story I want to see? Um, but we then have to watch the stories. Right, so you watching Dead India is really important, right? The more people that watch a show, the more um, a studio is going to feel confident to make more shows like that. Because so, at the end of the day, it's a business, right? And so you sort of say, well, okay, we we can 
support all different kinds of stories to figure out, you know, what's going to work. Um, but then it's about an audience showing up and embracing those stories. And I think more and more they are. Um, and we're seeing audiences really gravitate towards the stories that they feel they can connect to because they represent the world that they're used to living in versus a sort of a Hollywood version of a world that doesn't doesn't resonate or doesn't make sense for a generation of people who are living a different uh, experience. Thank you. That That's so great. I'm so excited to see all the new projects and keep supporting all the ones that are doing so great. It was so amazing to get to talk to you. You are so cool. Yeah. Good talking to you too. <laughs> Have fun. Good luck with the project. <laughs> Thank you. I really right. appreciate it. It was so nice to meet you. You're super Thank awesome. You. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, let's go on over to meet all of the cool people at Cartuca. to introduce some new very special guests from the Overland College Exco Cartoon Co. Would you all like to introduce yourselves, please? Um, I'm Zaria. I'm a co-instructor of Cartoon Co. I'm Sydney. I use she, her. And I'm also a co-instructor of Cartoon Co. I'm Chloe. I use any pronouns. I am a cartoon enthusiast who's just kind of here. <laughs> I'm here for the vibes. <laughs> Chloe's also an expert and a student of Cartoon Co. Yes, that's so true. <laughs> um, I'm also a student of Cartoon Co. So first, just to ask about this class itself to Zarya and Sydney, you two started this Exco. I believe this is your fifth semester teaching it. That's it so cool. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about how... You know, you started it, what got you into it, everything. I was like, what if I made an Xco? And I started writing a whole bunch of things down. And then I was like, well, dang, I can't do this by myself. I was like, Sydney, do you want to do this Xco with me? <laughs> and I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and then I was like, very determined on making this happen. And then it did. And so here we are, five semesters later. <laughs> and we started um, the fall of 2020, which was the first, in a sense, like, back on campus pandemic semester. Yeah. So this was one thing at least to look forward to, of being like a, we're all kind of just in our rooms all the time, but we get to go out and teach. Yeah, dudes. While we were making the initial and current um, like slides for our class, um, that was basically when we did all of our research. So as we made uh, slides for each class, um, you know, like way ahead of the time, um, advance of class. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course, it was not, not the hour yeah, before. Absolutely not. Um, that was when we started doing all of our research, and so we started looking into it, like diversity, music, all that fun stuff. We started like actually looking into it, so we learned everything basically from that time of research. Thank you. That's so cool. Also, thanks for making it because love this. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed the video. Best part. Best part of school. I'll say it. But this next question to any of you can answer if you would like. Um, <laughs> what do you think about like why is animation and what makes animation and cartoons like a powerful medium to tell stories and what makes it the right choice to tell a story and like what can it do that live action cannot? <laughs> Before the podcast, I was already talking about this a little <laughs> bit, and it was in a sense the idea of yes, live action can have many different kinds of like film styles or like you cut to a certain scene or you have certain lighting but with animation you have different art styles you have the ability to animate things that could never be in a sense like uh, that would not be realistic you can render um, like amazing scenes and fight scenes that you can't get quite get with live action um, you can have like 
facial expressions that you can capture the exact way that you want them to. You can have lighting, coloring, all that fun stuff. It all caters to exactly what story you are telling. Uh, and really specific tangent off of that point, you can animate animals. I'm specifically thinking about like remakes of like <laughs> The Lion King, for example. But it works a lot better as a medium for animation because you can do a whole bunch of expressions with things that aren't supposed to be expressed that way, things that aren't real. And putting them on live action will come across as weirder or more static than it's supposed to be. Like live action lions don't actually have facial expressions. No. <laughs> it's so bad. Also, I think there's just so much opportunity for style in um, animation that there isn't in, in the same way in live action. Like you just have so much freedom with like the color palette and character design and you can kind of go a little bit surrealistic with like character design and making um, characters really sort of fit their personalities. That character design is definitely a big part of it. It's mm -hmm. like you can, these characters will, can tell you so much just by what they look like. And I think that's so cool. How, like, if, in light of all this, can, like, animation be used to tackle imbalances in power? So something I talked about in my essay was just, like, how since animation is so specific and, like, you can do exactly, like, say exactly what you're trying to show, it's just, like, when showing differences in power, especially between like two characters, it's really interesting to see things with like differences in like posture and movement and lighting. Like, do you all have any thoughts on those? I guess this isn't something I've considered much before. However, I guess I'm in, in this sense comparing it back to live action yet again. Um, with live action, you can't play with like, or you can, but maybe not in the same way. You can't play with like heights as much because height can always like. Uh, uh, depict a, a power imbalance you can't play with that as much you can't really play with like maybe shadows as much whereas like shadows in a cartoon can tell you so much like it can be like a shadow over a character's face or just their back maybe reaching into someone else's and it can show how much like oh you know this person is the person in power i think also character balance again character design and just like like bigger character small character or like the character sort of like looms over one of them or maybe like they're more angular or like things that are down to like minute details of like what they carry around with them maybe their scores like mash up whenever they come together mm -hmm. like one's like is constantly overplaying the other one so i think there's a lot more like hints in a way that people that once people are maybe not focused on like the physical appearance of an actor can focus on different other aspects i think um in cartoons there's sort of there's more like room for um kind of silliness with um with the way that they're portrayed and with the way that the scenes are allowed to exist and i think that sometimes that can play very well into power imbalance and like i'm specifically thinking of like the season finale of um the first season of amphibia I knew you were with, gonna say that one. <laughs> yeah with sasha and Anne and the way the way that um it pans to sasha's face it's like end of discussion like it's just really it's kind of a funny sort of like um i i wouldn't see that in live action like i wouldn't see the same like silliness being played with it but it's also just such a good way to show like what's going through Anne's head and how she sees sasha in that moment I think another example that we just watched was um, in the first episode or two of She-Ra, Katra, who's always talking back to, like, Shadow Weaver, who's in charge of her, um, in a sense, you would think, oh, she's not, like, you know, she's talking back to her, she doesn't respect her whatsoever, 
However, Shadow Weaver is absolutely, in a sense, the boss of her and scares her and has power over her. And we see that in scenes where Shadow Weaver literally grabs either Catra by the face, and then we see shadows, in fact, invading the screen. All around the screen, we see shadows, and you can tell, oh no, the Shadow Weaver's got the power here. So that's, I don't know, another way you can depict it that you won't be able to in other mediums as much. I have a thing about Amphibia, because you brought it up. Uh, because, like, Amphibia essentially, like, also, like, borrows from, like, anime and stuff. It's, like, really exaggerated, like, all the time. And so I think, like, because Amphibia is one of those shows that it's, like, we're going to be 2D extremes, it could really show off, like, different imbalances in, like, the friend groups because Amphibia's main friend group is... There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going <laughs> There's on. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> but, like, all those sort of levels of yeah if we want to keep going into the amphibia zone um with and with the power and the friendships thanks for bringing that up Sophia. um it's so interesting what like and with the sasha scene at the end of like the season one finale just showing like these very kind of normal in a way like uh i want to say mundane but that's not the right word but just like very commonly occurring in our world kind of like sort of unhealthy like power imbalances like interpersonally but like when there are swords involved <laughs> and when and they're frogs. like on the edge of a cliff with all the frogs and just like it makes it funnier but it's still not funny because it's it feels the stakes are so high but it it makes it even like clearer to the audience like oh there's some stuff going on here there's something wrong in this dynamic Oh yeah, they're fighting with swords. Um, this isn't healthy. <laughs> that's not what friendships are like. Um, and yeah, I think that's really interesting how you all brought up like the just sort of exaggerated nature of animation lets you like take these things that are oh, and like with like sort of like manipulation, like it's hard to sort of see that or like pin it down in the real world. But then like, I mean, I haven't watched all of Shiro, but that's definitely, I, from what I can tell, I mean, um, sort of theme is figuring that out and how it's so clearly like spelled out with the shadows and like the electricity. And then it's just really interesting how that can be used to just demonstrate these concepts too. I was, yeah, also just thinking like, if Amphibia was live action, the characters in Amphibia are like, 13 and watching real 13 year olds fight with swords would just not it wouldn't work in the way that it does in amphibia because you're able to suspend your disbelief when the characters are animated enough to see that there's like real stakes there and mm -hmm. i think that if if i was watching the show in a live action format and i was watching like actual 13 year olds fighting with swords it would just feel a little bit ridiculous i think um and like i don't know it could be done well possibly but i just think that it works so much better in an animated format like i mean we already saw how they attempted to make the avatar live action movie and um and it just some of the lines that like katara says and stuff just sounds so stupid because she just it like you can't really suspend your disbelief enough to believe that she's like older than like 10 years old or something like <laughs> Do you want to say hi to the podcast? Oh, my name is Casey, <laughs> and I am a content creator, I guess, on TikTok, and I post animation um, from across the decades. Um, I try not to do 2000s, I do mostly like 20th century. Animation is a really good tool for connection, 
and expression and it's limitless so interesting right like it it's it is like the most limitless genre mm -hmm. but the actual like social boundaries put onto it are, are oh, yeah. so strong especially the more popular it becomes the more everyone tries to please everyone and place more limits on it mm. Mm. do we want to get in want to get into that <laughs> what do you mean yeah. well, please explain when you have um when you have like Maybe more like I would say more niche things go under the radar and therefore is like okay We don't need to cater to everyone. We know our audience Whatever, but then once you get start to get into more I would say popular animation or cartoons um, In a sense, I swear I, they try and cater to everyone in a sense But almost cater to no one because they then limit what is available to be shown they limit like what um, in a sense the social boundaries um, or like you know representation that some people don't want to see for some reason even though it exists out in the world so shows like the owl house despite it being very popular is on disney and so they're like oh it's very popular we're a very popular channel um and then once they have this this queer representation it's no longer fitting the disney brand and then they cancel it to the dismay of many because it's a great show um and i have many other thoughts about the network that, that it, and it's such an interesting choice for them financially too because it was working as a show mm -hmm. and to to profit off of that they could have made a lot of money oh absolutely show. they could have gone so much further yeah. which feels like that should be their end goal just like as a bit massive corporation like why not just like make as much money as you can mm -hmm. but no oh, well, sorry go ahead no no yeah. but now that they realize that it's really popular they've been saying they've been toting its popularity of every instance that they can they're like look it's our number one show or something and it's like you but you can't it, it. <laughs> it's like you could have you could disney what you doing there's also it's not a it's not a tv show but there's also like the idea that strange world which came out recently is a animated disney movie that came out um in theaters and you know what almost no one knows about it Almost no one has seen the trailer, and almost no one knows what the actual plot is because they didn't advertise it. Mm -hmm. It was one of their, it was I think one of the first animated films that they've put out that didn't like, it hit, it hit like a record, like a bad record of like in 30 years it is like one of their worst performing animated movies in the past 30 years. The trailers and really did not tell you what it was about. No, they don't, and they didn't advertise it at all. And part of the idea is that very possibly because one of their characters is queer, they were like, oh well. You know, our first animated movie, the queer main protagonist, uh, didn't do well, therefore we're not going to do it anymore. Like, that, that's their reasoning. But they made that reasoning by not advertising that movie. Um, in a sense, they kind of just shot themselves in the foot. Well, why wouldn't they want to get as much money as possible and advertise it so people will go see it and make it clear this is a movie you want to see? And it's very possibly because they are like, well, we did a, a quote-unquote woke movie and it didn't work out, so we shouldn't do it anymore. Um, so there's that idea of floating around out there. Yeah. I would consider myself someone who's like generally pretty aware of like new queer media coming out, and I did not know about that. Nope, no, no, because it wasn't advertised. <laughs> but also, like the character that is uh, one of the, like uh, their first uh, queer character of, of this one. Um, First. It's apparently the main character, but you never see him in the trailer. Instead, it looks like it's someone else. It's about the main his, character. You almost think it's about his father. Yeah, yeah. But it's like no, it's about it's about the kid, and you're like, but the kid, like what kid? He was barely in the trailer, and his queerness is apparently like, I think a part of his journey in the movie, and so they're like, yeah, I think it's like he has a, like a crush on one of his classmates, and so I think he wants to ask him out or something like that. Um, but but yeah. no one's gonna go see this movie because no one knows about it. 
Also very frustrating how many times Disney has had a first queer I was character. just going to say, yeah. <laughs> times are there going to be a first, like, gay whatever? They're going to have milk said that everything so they've got. Yeah. yeah, and it's, so, it's such a weird contradiction because here they have what sounds like actual representation, mm-hmm. and it wasn't at all advertised, mm-hmm. or, like, very minimally as the first gay character whereas like you think of the remake the live action remake of beauty and the beast and how lefou is like the, the first gay character oh, like oh, that God. couple in, in finding dory that's just on screen for oh, five yeah, seconds yeah. <laughs> well it's because they want the title of being like diverse and open and everybody can go see it but at the same time I'm like no but we also like sales oh no oh no about onward too yeah, yeah. Onward. yeah. Like, what else yeah there's been more i feel like there's so many there's one of my favorite like youtubers um her name is rowan ellis rowan <laughs> <laughs> she does all these like queer media analysis youtube videos but once in a while she'll just make a video that's like completely unhinged like most of her videos are scripted and like hours long and then she'll just be like i can't take it anymore guys. <laughs> and then she did this one that was like the contest of all of disney's like first gay mm-hmm. characters and it was just like so chaotic because there's so many there's so many uh, and then they have actual queer representation and then they cancel it or they don't advertise it or they just completely ignore it or shoot themselves in the foot yet again just like why wouldn't they want to make as much money as they can as a corporation instead so of like no 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 we gotta please the the haters whatever it feels like there's a commonality between like every every um like section of the industry where animation is occurring that animators are more so than I would say, I would argue other filmmakers in live action spaces animators have to push and push mm-hmm. and push and they, they seem to be more on the forefront of mm-hmm. things sometimes on, prog- on progressive values I mean and like I don't know maybe it's because people don't pay as, as much attention or give as, mu- as much credit to, to animation that they're able to kind of like um, experiment or like throw in like maybe something a little controversial for the network mm-hmm. I, I don't know it's it yeah it just seems like there's always like a battle between like the animators what they truly what their perfect vision would be imagine if we got the perfect vision oh I'm like yeah these shows like if you know they had didn't have to go through the the filtering of of the industry top the professionals yeah like do you oh, <laughs> no, I was just gonna say like that one scene in Star versus the Forces of Evil where in the back it all the, there's like a there's, they're on like a football uh, seating, whatever it's called. Um, oh, stadium. Bleachers, yeah. yeah. And uh, all the couples are kissing in the background. In the background, you see like four or five like gay couples kissing. Um, and they barely got that through the censors, um, these animators. But the reason they were almost able to is because it's animated. If it were like live action, people would be pointing it out and be like, no, 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 I'm calling, I'm calling. Why can't I have my child watch this? I yeah. feel, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say they really have to pick and choose their battles. Yeah. But they really have to pick and choose what will make a difference reputa- representationally. Mm-hmm. What can I sneak through the censor? Mm-hmm. It, oh, it's so, it's so, it's so rough. I feel like it's both because the networks and companies are like, it's just animation. Because it's like, right, yeah. it's a kid thing, it's fine. But also they're like, it's a kid thing. We have to make sure it's up to like, it's acceptable. And so it's like this weird thing of like, they don't pay enough attention to it. And then they pay too much attention to it. And I'm like, decide. <laughs> they pay attention to it when it doesn't fit their view. And that's about it. The brand. I also brand. think that like, I don't know, this might be a little bit of a reach, but... I feel like um, 
cartoons are like a very nerdy thing and like adults liking cartoons is like a very um i feel like neurodivergent sort of thing and i feel like a lot of the common themes that i see in cartoons that also have queer representation is not fitting in and so i think that's just a lot of like a lot of these creators embracing their passions embracing their differences and then finding that way to explore their queerness and tell their stories through their art and it needs to be respected <laughs> respect I, the art i wonder if part of that hmm? oh no uh could i at the last oscars and then someone whoever was like announcing the work for like best animated picture it was basically like announced it as a kids genre and it was like y'all uh there are other things in this category that weren't made for kids or like directly for kids and so ev- the animation industry kind of like made an uproar at that and was like that's not what the animation is Sorry. Okay. Yeah. um what was i was gonna say i was gonna say that maybe it has to do with like the fact that they don't often have to deal with like hollywood and like live action does like directors do like hollywood paparazzi it's not the same level of like artistry um where they don't have to deal with that so maybe that's why part of it can all can be like more a little bit more pushing in there getting some things in there um but on the other hand i also wonder if maybe part of it is the distancing between live action and animation um like if you see like once again live action representation in any way um it's almost a bit too close to home but when it's animation you can almost tell yourself oh it's all fake because it's animation i was just thinking that Mm -hmm. like because it's animated you're removed in a completely different way it's like the more layers of disconnection you give to an audience the more connected they feel because you can get messaging through and it's not going to feel like like you're pre- preaching not to say that you would be preaching but any it yeah like it gives it gives a removal it gives it like a uh where's the word i'm thinking yeah yeah distance kind of yeah like yeah that like makes it of disbelief yes exactly yeah. and it adds a, a comfort um, and an openness to like receiving harder topics mm-hmm. and yeah yeah actually melissa cobb the head of netflix animation talked about that very thing on the same podcast <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> she said uh she specifically referenced utopia and was mm-hmm. saying like here we have these very real themes of like racism and bigotry mm-hmm. and like how we can but like through animals and so people can watch it and be like oh that's not me just distance themselves from it fully but then hopefully still get the messaging because then they're like not feeling i don't know attacked or whatever it's not but you know what i mean like she talked about that of like people are feeling less like personalized about what they're seeing and so then can actually engage with it more and then understand it better i guess that can also be then a double-edged sword of like it gives people then the opportunity to view it because animators can make it but at the same time and and like then connect with it and because the you know um because you can connect with it more that's also a good thing but then also double-edged sword people can then just write it off Mm -hmm. as it's just a cartoon Mm -hmm. um so it's definitely like a thin line between how it helps connect and how it helps disconnect Beyonce, when I first saw Zootopia, I did not get it. Like, I mean, like, no. I got it. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I understand in the context of the movie, but as in the context out of the movie, I was like, no. But my mom was like, yeah, this is what it's, yeah. I'm like, really? Um, but then, like, now I understand. I'm like, I don't know if that's whether because I just learned how to analyze things or that's because I just didn't get it. But, yeah. That's a good point, how, like, it can be too disconnected and, like, where you even... Like, when is the message even coming across? Mm -hmm. Like, 
that's a really good point. Yeah, because parents can still be like, no, it's just a movie about mm -hmm. two animals if yeah. they don't want their kids to be like too engaged in the political process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I'd like to go back to something Chloe brought up and maybe delve a bit into the Owl House if, if we're on that yeah. track now. So, um, specifically, I think this is a, like you brought it up so well, talking about how it's like, in animation and cartoons in general but like i feel like especially exemplified in the owl house like themes of like not fitting in and then like founding like finding found family finding other people who also don't fit in to fit in with and like queer representation and just like neurodivergent themes and like coding and things like that and yeah any general thoughts to get us started or just get into it <laughs> Yeah. Owl House is like so important to me because I just, um, I don't know, I'm a very nerdy queer kid and um, I don't know, very nerdy queer 22 year old um, and I really feel like I found my family through cartoons and in a lot of ways the Owl House has brought me together with a lot of people because it's a very social thing that I do is like watching cartoons with people and like bonding with people through watching cartoons with people and so it's just kind of a funny um, funny Russian doll effect that I'm like watching cartoons with my found family and that's kind of how I'm finding my family. And then those cartoons are also about found family. And um, I, yeah, so yeah, I, I imagine that people have similar experiences. I heavily relate. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to remember when I like, I don't know, the Owl House has always been so important to me ever since I like started watching it. Uh, like a lot of, a lot of it has to do with like so many of the themes we've talked about and also just like having the main character be like gender non-conforming and like going to Grom, which is like the prom in like a little like suit and a tutu, I like, this is so good. And then also like being, like having, this is like another part of it, like the main character who's like gender non-conforming be like the love interest too was a really big deal to me because I was like, what? I, that's never really like shown as like oh you can be like attractive or like quote unquote like desirable like that which is like really sad but like that was really cool to me i was like oh my god yeah then the arrow part of me when they actually started like getting together i was like wait can we go back to when amity was just like really into loose and loose was like oblivious <laughs> <So> <laughs> but i still love them they're very cute <laughs> i'm also arrow <laughs> something that i really like about the owl house and specifically loose no theta because my child uh it's just like her different her her being like quirky and weird and like different is what sort of helps everyone else because like the boiling isles is like this place where it's like the whole situation is weird but then you have like bellos who's <laughs> who's pretty much against like all the weirdness through his ruling of trying to pretend to be one of them and so everyone when we meet them has been living sort of like not to their truest self and so Luz kind of unlocks all that just by being herself. And sometimes it gets them into social trouble, but it ultimately like benefits them. And I really love that so much. Yeah, something I love in the Owl House is all of the character development. Like, um, I don't know, just, I want to say this <laughs> without saying too many spoilers. Like, <laughs> so, many, so many of the characters just go through these great arcs, Willow. mostly because of Luz. And like, a lot of them go from like, like Amity being from very like hard and angry and um, struggling to conform and fit in and putting on this face of conformity 
to a point that's detrimental to them and everyone around them, um, except the people who want them to fit in. And then Luce kind of just bringing those walls down and let and having watching those characters let themselves be free and be happy, and then seeing how that makes everyone around them happy, and it's just such a um, such a powerful storyline, and it happens so many times with so many different characters in the Owl House, and it's just I never get tired of watching that. It just speaks to my soul, and. Um, it's I, I think that that's like a like the redemption character I feel like is a very common trope in a lot of these cartoons like Amphibia, Avatar, you know, and yeah, and people people love that stuff. People love being able to watch characters put their bring down their walls and be themselves and um, seeing that people can own up to their mistakes and um, be accepted. Power of friendship and the power of love in cartoons is one of my favorite things. Yeah, I love it too. so much. Absolutely. And I feel like that's related to something that everyone was saying earlier about how we can sort of, that can happen more in cartoons because they're dismissed more often as being for kids. It's like when things are targeted towards adults, it's like, oh, that's unrealistic. Like for people to like change and like evolve and become like better people, which obviously is not true and is such a bad message. <laughs> but in cartoons, it is so much easier to like kind of justify that as like oh it's a kid show we're showing it for kids um these people are you know like and it's just it's such a better message of like yeah people have good inside of them and like people need love and support and then they can love and support other people and sometimes we need unrealistic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like sometimes we just need to not think oh this you know this can't ever happen, it's not realistic. Sometimes we need to think, no, 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 that is possible, and it is. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for yeah. having us. Yeah. That was so Thank cool. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Oh my god. Any any parting words? Any watch shows cartoons. you should watch? Watch cartoons. Watch cartoons. Watch, watch Kipo. Watch not enough people know about Kipo. <laughs> watch everything. <laughs> watch whatever you want to watch, yes. but don't forget to try animation. It has a lot of things they may never have tried before. Yeah. Yes. And if you're an Overland student, take Cartoon Co. Yeah. Great <laughs> promotion. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Animation Exploration. See you next time.